This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. All right, well, this week we are learning about the power of stories to influence. So we're going to have a word of prayer together, and then we'll dive in. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for um, your love and your care and your grace to us. Thank you for the richness of your word. Uh, Lord, the Bible is so full of truth. We, we never can mine its depths, and we never can share all of that truth with others. But Lord, help us to have hearts that are burdened to be those who are sharing your truth, who are uh, communicating what you've given to us in your word to others. Uh, we're not just receiving it to ourselves, but we're passing it along as well. Uh, grow our burden for that, we pray. Help this class to be a help um, in that. And be with us tonight as we think about this um, important matter of influencing others with stories. Help us think about this clearly. Help us to develop a, a godly perspective on this subject and help us to become more effective in this area. Uh, guide us by your hand with the wisdom of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. They don't look like much. Uh, the ragtag crowd that is gathered to hear the man who's just arrived in the city are interested to hear what he has to say, but they're not confident that his words are going to mean very much. This man standing in front of them is different from most of those who are currently living in the city of Jerusalem. His clothes are finer. He carries himself like one who is used to rubbing shoulders with royalty. Uh, he has a certain authority about him. But many of those who are eyeing him are unsure if these are good or bad traits. And as he prepares to speak, Nehemiah probably wonders, what is it that can move this group to action? What could possibly be said that would unite them around a common goal? He speaks clearly as he addresses the crowd, gesturing at the ruins of their former capital. Nehemiah begins his speech with something that he knows everyone present will clearly understand. You see the distress that we are in. How Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now there's no denying or overlooking those facts. Uh, these people have been living with those realities for decades. But then he utters a shocking call to action. Come, he says, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Now he's appealing here to their national pride. And... No doubt that strikes a chord in the hearts of his hearers to think about this idea of removing the reproach from the people of Israel. But even a thrilling call to action like that is not enough to convince them to join in on this audacious scheme. And Nehemiah realizes that. He knows they need more convincing. And so he takes them back to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah tells his story. He talks about hearing about the state of Jerusalem while he was living in Susa, serving the Persian king there. He tells this crowd about the prayers that he poured out to God and about how God answered those prayers. He talks about that day when he was serving the king and the king asked him a question that set his heart beating faster. The king asked, why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. And then he tells that group that's gathered how he responded by telling the king about the sorry state of Jerusalem and his burden to see it rebuilt. He then asks the king, hoping for a miracle, that he'll be allowed to return to the city and lead the charge on rebuilding their capital. And to Nehemiah's grateful shock, the king is happy to allow him to go. Emboldened by that, Nehemiah goes on to request royal letters to ensure his safe passage and also to allow him to requisition timber from the royal forest. And again, his request is granted, 
And the king also uh, gives him an armed escort. All of this Nehemiah tells to his fellow countrymen there at Jerusalem, making it clear to anyone with ears to hear that God's hand is on Nehemiah and on this venture. They're not only enjoying the backing of the most powerful monarch in the known world, but they have the backing of Almighty God. After Nehemiah tells about the hand of God on him and how, what the king had done for him to get him here, the people respond. And their response is strong and decisive. Let us rise up and build. Immediately they begin to prepare. And this ragtag band of uh, Jerusalem dwellers are going to build the wall. Now, pressure on Nehemiah was high when he gave that speech that day. No doubt, things could have gone very differently. The people could have ignored him altogether. They could have seen his as a harebrained scheme, as an impossible dream, something that could never happen. They could have actively opposed him, wanting to maintain the status quo, afraid to draw attention to themselves. But Nehemiah, led by God, told them his story and the people strengthened their hands for the good work. Now this is just one scriptural example of the power of stories when used for the right reasons and in the right way to influence others. And I'm convinced that Nehemiah talking about God's hand on him is the spark that led these people to say, you know what, we should undertake this endeavor. Now, I titled this lesson Sticky Story, and that's a term that's used um, in storytelling circles and also in marketing circles. Um, the idea of a sticky story is one that sticks with people, all right? It isn't just in one ear and out the other. It's something that, that sticks with you. You remember it. And really, the, the, the key to the idea of a sticky story is that it's something that sticks with people, they continue to think about it, and it moves them to action. So that concept specifically is thrown around in marketing circles because that's something that people in marketing are very interested in. They want um, sticky marketing. They want marketing that's going to stay with people, they're going to continue to think about it, and it's going to move them to action, i.e., they're going to pay money for a product because of the marketing. And so it's something that a lot of um, those in marketing give a lot of thought to. And it's interesting, actually, how many companies try to tell their story in their marketing materials. <coughs> Just go on the website of a major company and see how many of them have a tab that says, Our Story. Um, just look at the back of a, a Little Debbie box or a, a package of Sargento cheese or any number of other products that you find in your supermarket. And what are they doing? In a little blurb, they're telling their story. And they're trying to do it in a way that draws you in, that you're going to think about it, and then it's going to make you want their product. Well, obviously, that's one motivation for the idea of a sticky story. We have a much better, greater motivation. And that is, we want to share stories that stick with people, uh, that they continue to think about and that lead them to action, not to buy a product, but to be transformed to better, more fully obey God, more, more fully live according to his truth. That's our goal. And so we want to tell sticky stories because we want them to be something that transforms people's lives. It's not just something they're entertained by. It's not just something even that they remember. It's something that is having an influence. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. And really we're going to be focusing in on the point of application. Now we talked in Lesson 6 about the levels of communication. I'm not going to go all through that again um, and rehash all of that information. You can go back and look at that if you weren't here. Um, but I just want to point out in these different levels of, of communication, what we're going for at the very center is application. 
So when we're communicating to people, the ultimate goal is always application. It's always not just that they hear, not just that they remember, not just that they take it to heart, but that it actually transforms their lives, that it, they do something about it. And so that's where what we're going for. And as we're trying to communicate the truth of God to people and trying to see their lives transform, stories can play uh, a big part in that. They can be a powerful tool for influence. So we're going to look at a few of those areas tonight. First, I want to look at using stories to convince your hearers. Now, before someone is truly ready to apply a message, they have to have decided that that message is valid. Before somebody's going to take it to heart, before it's going to transform their lives, they have to have decided, they have to be convinced. They have to be willing to buy in. And as those confronting people with biblical truth, that can be really challenging, especially in some contexts. Uh, as you share God's truth with others, you may be sharing something that goes uh, straight against some of their preconceptions. On the other hand, you may just be presenting something to them that's new information to them. They, they've never really thought about it before. It's, it's not a part of who they are. And so... Stories can help in overcoming some of those barriers and helping convince people of the truth. So, uh, for example, stories can help us in the process of building the new. Now, by that I mean constructing in someone's heart and mind an understanding of truth that did not exist there before. So, if you're introducing a truth to someone that is new to them or they don't have a very full view of that truth, uh, stories can be really helpful. So, Say you're pre presenting someone with the idea of God's sovereignty for the first time. This person does not have a biblical concept of the fact that God is in control. All right? So you're trying to share this truth with them, help them to understand it. And no doubt as you do that, um, many people are going to struggle. So certain ideas are going to come to their mind, certain arguments against this idea. So they might think, well, okay, if God's in control, then why is the world the way that it is? Why is there trouble? Why is there sin? Why is there pain? Uh, this, this, many people struggle with the idea that God is in control because of these other things in the world, and they have a hard time reconciling that. And as you're trying to share this truth with them, no doubt that you're going to take them to Scripture, give them give them biblical proof, biblical support for the fact that God is in control. Um, you might take them to a passage like Romans 8, 28. You know, God is working all things together for good. Uh, you might take them somewhere like Colossians 1, 16 and 17, which talks about the fact that God is the creator and that also by him all things consist. You might take them somewhere like um, Proverbs 16, 33, that talks about the fact that the, lost, the lot is cast into the lap but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. So God cares even about those little things that we think aren't really that important. God's even in control of that. Uh, you might take them somewhere like Job 42.2, where Job says to God, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. So you might take them to different proof texts like this and say, so here's what the scripture says here, and here's how that supports the idea of God's sovereignty. And that's all good. But do you know what else you might do? While you're in Job 42, you might hang out in the book of Job for a little bit longer. And you might go back to Job chapters 1 and 2. Because do you know what we see about God in living color in the story of Job? God is in control. And you can take someone through this story and ask the question, was God in control even when Job's belongings vanished? Was God in control even when his kids died? Was God in control even as Job sat alone in the ashes, scraping his painful boils? Was God still in control? And we can look at this story in scripture and say, yeah, God was still in control. God still had a purpose even in that. Even in this, this lowest of lows... God was still in control. God was sovereign in the story of Job, in the life of Job. 
God is not unaware of pain and sorrow in this world. Neither is he helpless to do anything about it. Quite the contrary. He is sovereignly purposeful even in the lowest, most miserable point of the most painful life. So Job gives us a a personal story of someone who struggled with some of this. And yet we get kind of a backdoor picture and we get to see how God was in control all through it. I don't know about you, but I appreciate the list of proof texts. But something like the story of Job is so much stronger of an argument, so much stronger to convince me of God's sovereignty than any number of of proof texts. Not least of all, because you can easily take a verse and twist it. But these stories in Scripture are so rich, and they tell us things about God, and they express these doctrinal truths. And so often, what's going to be most convincing to someone, when they're struggling and trying to learn this truth and wrestling with it, is not just providing them with those proof texts, but sharing a story. Even a personal story, thinking about this idea of God's sovereignty, of how at the lowest point of your life, you learn something about the good hand of God, even in the darkest night, could also be a powerful illustration that would help to convince someone, help them to take to heart this truth. You know, part of me, as someone so steeped in Western culture, really pushes back against this idea. Because what I want in order to be convinced, what I think I want in order to be convinced, is good, lawyer-like, logical arguments. If you can back me into a corner logically, then you'll convince me. And we are convinced in our culture that that's how humans work. That logic is what convinces people. But the more that I study how God presents truth in Scripture, and the more that I recognize how humans actually work, the more I'm convinced that people aren't convinced by logic as much as they are by stories. Whether we like it or not, I'm convinced that's the reality. And so we need to make sure that what we're presenting is firmly backed up by all of Scripture and that there are proof texts. But often the most convincing things to get people to to embrace the truth are going to be these stories. Just take a second and remember the method that God used more in his word to present us with the truth. Did God use more lawyerly, logical arguments, or did he use more stories? It's very interesting to me. So something to chew on. But if you're trying to help somebody present a new truth to them, help them to believe a biblical truth uh, that they're struggling with, try using a story or two. Moving on, stories can help us to build, but they can also help to tear down So sometimes when we're presenting God's truth, we have to work to tear down unbiblical preconceptions. Sometimes in order to help somebody receive the truth, it's going to mean helping them to to disassemble some ideas, some things that have been built up in their minds. And again, stories can be really helpful with this. This is a really hard thing to do. It is not easy to go in and say, I'm going to help you to disassemble your preconceptions. Because whether we realize it or not, we come to every interaction with those preconceptions already. We don't even realize they're there most of the time. And so, again, many times we can think what we need to do is go at this debate style. All right, I need to debate them down and beat their preconceptions, and then I'll be able to share the truth with them. But let me ask you, think about every single debate that you've ever witnessed. Every single one, all right? You don't have to think of them all, but all right. 
But have you ever, in any one of those, ever, even once, seen two people debating each other where one debater argued the other guy into a corner and then the guy in the corner changed his mind and said, you know, you're right. I was wrong. You win. Have you ever heard somebody in a debate utter those words? No matter how much everybody watching the debate said, that guy won, guess who never admitted that? The guy who lost. Because none of us are going to respond well to that sort of argument. Arguments strengthen our preconceptions. So we're going to say more about this in Lesson 10 when we talk about using stories to confront. So I'm not going to dig too deep into this tonight, but I just want to touch on it. Argument is not the way to most effectively tear down people's wrong preconceptions. I would argue that maybe the most effective way to challenge and overcome someone's preconceived notions is to tell stories. Good stories make people think, and good stories allow people to consider ideas that they would otherwise immediately resist. And this is something, like I said, we're, we're really going to dig into this in Lesson 10, and there are examples, so many examples throughout Scripture. Um, but let me give you one biblical example. In Acts chapter 15, we find a very, uh, a very august gathering. There are some really important people all gathered in the same room. Uh, this gathering comprises the apostles and the elders. So these are those who are with Christ as his inner circle and also those who have been chosen as leaders in the still young church in Jerusalem. There are at least three biblical authors in this room. Um, more likely, as many as five. Even, but even with these big names, there's, there's Simon Peter, there's Paul, there's Jesus' brother James. The, me the meeting begins, Scripture says, with much disputing. So there's a lot of argument going on. There's a lot of people with differing ideas, throwing ideas back and forth. They're debating, they're disputing, they're arguing. I don't mean to suggest that, it's, that there's, there's bad blood or that it's being done in a way that's, that's mean or unkind, but there's a lot of argument going on back and forth. And here's the question that they're considering. What to do with Gentile believers? So did Gentiles coming to Christ need to be circumcised? That's a big question. And then, did these Gentiles coming to Christ need to observe Jewish dietary laws? Did they need to observe the ordinances regarding the Sabbath, rituals of purification, the feasts, all of these things? Are these things that the Gentiles coming to Christ needed to do? Is that part of Christianity? Is that something that need to be imposed on these new Gentile believers? And some were suggesting yes. These are important parts of our faith. They, they need to be done once some people come to Christ. Others are saying absolutely not. And they're going back and forth on this issue. And then Simon Peter stands to speak. And he reminds the council of an event that happened back in Acts 10. That's when Peter met a man named Cornelius, a Roman centurion who God saved. And you can read the whole story there, an amazing story an important milestone in the growth of the church. But Peter reminds these, these leaders who've gathered in Jerusalem of that story, and he points out the fact that God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So, of course, the us and them is us Jews, them Gentiles. He's saying they came to Christ and God did not put a distinction. He gave them the Holy Ghost just like he gave the Holy Ghost to us. I was there. I experienced it. He tells this story. He talks about what happened. And the group is silenced by Peter's argument. But what is the substance of Peter's argument? It's a story. 
Well, the next two to speak are Paul and Barnabas. And they too make a powerful argument. And what do they tell the group about? Well, they tell them what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. They too are telling stories. They're saying, here's what we've seen God do among the Gentiles. Here's the reality of what's going on out there. And after all the argument, all the debate that's gone on, the matter's settled. James wraps it up. He points out that these stories line up with Scripture. And uh, in, in the terms of what we would, we would think about in, a, in our meetings today, he calls for emotion. All right, he, they, they reach this decision that this group, the Jerusalem Council, uh, is, is going to draft and send a letter out to the Gentile churches. And in that letter, they will say, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication from which if you keep yourselves, you shall do well. So they're telling all the Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to obey the Jewish law. Here are the things that we think it would be wise for you to follow as Gentiles to help things go smoothly, all right? There are certain things that they're doing um, that we would say, that's not sin. It's not sin to eat the meat that's offered to idols. Paul talks about that and that sort of thing. They say, here's what we've settled on based on what we understand about what God is doing among the Gentiles. But it's really interesting to me here. You've got this group. You think about the greatest theologians of the time. That's kind of the idea, all right? All of those who, who best know Christ, all of those who best know what he taught, they're all gathered together in one room trying to decide on this issue, bringing their big brains to, to bear. And what is it that brings them to the conclusion? What is it that, that seals the argument and makes them realize this is what we need to do? It's stories. Stories are a powerful, persuasive tool. And for many of those there who had these preconceived ideas about the parts of Jewish law that needed to be a part of their faith, these stories were a powerful tool to tear that down and help them realize, no, this is how God is looking at this. So as we're thinking about people applying the truth, stories can be really important in persuading them, in helping them to to accept new truth and to tear down false preconceptions. But they can also be powerful to show the truth. Now, there's a principle that applies across areas of life that's true here. And uh, that principle is this. Showing is better than telling. I don't know when I started to learn that principle, but I would say probably when I, when I was working at Chick-fil-A when I was in high school. And uh, once I got to the point where I was experienced and beginning to be a part of training others, um, it's not necessarily easy to train a, a high schooler how to... Um, how to work in a fast food restaurant. You might say, that would be so simple. It might not be as simple as you'd think. But I had, to, I had to make sure that people knew how to fill out an order or fix a drink or make a Chick-fil-A sandwich or whatever. And so my default at first was I'd look them in the eye, I'd explain in detail how the whole process works. All right, I've got my bullet points my number list, whatever, and I'm going to go right down it and say, you do this, 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 you do this. Got it? Okay, good. Now go do it. I found out very quickly that doesn't work very well. Do you know what worked most of the time? It was showing them. And so I would, I would take them back there, and I'd say, this is how you drop the chicken down into the fryer, and this is how you, you pull it back out when it's done. And this is how you butter the bun, put it in the toaster. And this is how you put the pickles on the bun. And this is how you put the chicken on. Here's how you bag it. And this is the chute you're going to put it in. And I'd show them those steps. And that's so much more effective. I also learned um, here when I first got on, I got on staff at the church and I was trying to help guests when they're here for services. 
and try to direct them to different parts of the building. You know, Our fellowship hall is you go down this hallway and then you're going to turn and then there's double doors and there's other double doors and then your class you're going to turn right, you're going to go through one doorway and then that's going to be the class you're going into, okay? I quickly found out that the thing that I need to do is, you know, I'd love to walk you there. Let me show you where that's at. Let me show you where our fellowship hall is. Oh, it's right over this way. Walk with me. Much more effective. The same is true when it comes to sharing biblical truth. It's much more effective to show than it is to tell. And stories can be a really important part of that. They're, they're powerful because they don't just tell the truth, they show it. They help us see the, the truth fleshed out. So this can uh, be in the form of positive examples. So what do strong convictions look like? Well, think of Daniel. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Or, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled down upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Daniel lives according to what he believes, regardless of the consequences, and we see God bless him for his faithfulness. But do you want to understand what it means to have strong convictions, convictions that you act on, convictions that transform your life? Well, we can talk about it all day, but let me introduce you to Daniel. And as we look at his life and we see it played out, that helps us not just hear the truth, but see it. It helps us not just, just know it, but to, to see it fleshed out. Scripture and our lives are full of stories that serve as positive examples of truth. But of course, stories can also be negative examples. So, what does it look like to live according to your passions? Well, meet Samson. And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I've seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me to wife. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren or among all my people that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. Or, and Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took firebrands and turned tail to tail and put a firebrand in the midst between two tails. And when he set the brands on fire, he let them go into the standing corn of the Philistines and burnt up both the shocks and also the standing corn with the vineyards and olives. Those are just a couple of examples. You know his life is full of them. He clearly had a woman problem. He clearly had an anger problem. And we watched Samson throw his life away. And again, we can talk about the, the, the aspects of living according to our passions. But looking at Samson, seeing his life, brings it into clear view. Because we see an example. We see what it looks like to take that road. And scripture, and unfortunately our lives too, are also full of stories that can serve as negative illustrations of truth. Stories can vibrantly show us what the truth look like. They can take the truth out of the theoretical, and they can make it practical. Now, connected to that idea is the idea of stories as a call to action. Now, God's word by nature leads us to the point where we need to either accept or reject what it says. We need to either allow its truth to transform us, or we will reject it. But that doesn't just mean filing information away to give ourselves a thoroughly orthodox brain. Truth ought to lead us to action. And so true application is a two-part process. It begins by the truth being internalized. All right? So the truth is out here. First step of application is truth getting in here. It becoming part of who I am. Me receiving it, me believing it, it becoming a conviction for me. But there's a second step, 
and that is the re-externalizing of truth. So application is the internalizing, but then externalizing. So going, uh, receiving it and becoming a part of me, but then it becoming something that shows on the outside. It has to move, uh, lead to action or it's not true application. If it doesn't ever make it to the point where you can see the difference it's made in my life, then it hasn't truly been applied. And so that's where presenting people with truth needs to be accompanied with a call to action. And often stories can be a really helpful part of that. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like it when someone yells at me. I do, though, like someone who will challenge me. So how do you challenge someone without yelling at them? How do you call someone to action without belittling, berating, um, you know, making them feel like you're, like you're driving them into the dirt? That's a challenge for anyone who's really trying to challenge people with the truth. But I think that stories can be a great way to clearly challenge people without it, it sounding like I'm, I'm yelling at you without me demeaning you or making you feel like trash. Because stories show the transformative power of God's grace and give people a glimpse of life lived God's way. So, in Luke 7, Jesus just sits there and lets the embarrassing situation play out. A disreputable woman enters the house. She weeps her tears falling on Jesus' bare feet, and then she gently, lovingly wipes the tears away with her long hair, and then she bows lower and kisses his feet. She breaks a box of expensive ointment, she pours it liberally on his feet, and Jesus' host is horrified. The whole circumstance leaves him very uncomfortable. He knows this woman's tarnished reputation and wishes that Jesus would tell her to leave. Jesus turns and speaks to his host. Simon, he says, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Simon bids him to share his mind. And Jesus tells him a short and simple story. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon gives him the obvious answer. It's the one who was forgiven most. And Jesus agrees. And then he turns to the woman who was, has just caused Simon so much discomfort and consternation. And he says, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with, her t with tears and wiped them with the tears of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Is there a call to action in there? Absolutely. Quite a call to action. But Jesus uses this story as a compelling call to action for this self-righteous Pharisee, Simon. Now, finally, stories can be a big part of influence because they help us make it personal. Stories can help hearers get to the place where they say, this is for me. The truth has a bearing on my life. And we've talked about that principle from the very beginning because stories are about people and people wrestling with and interacting with the truth. That can help hearers to understand how they can and should interact with the truth. And that can mean uh, using biblical stories. It can also mean using stories from our own experience, lessons that we have learned. Uh, when I talk about the power of encouragement, I like to tell a story from when I was a kid. Uh, I was the first person in my family to have a digital camera, and it boasted the following specs. 3.2 megapixel resolution, three times digital zoom, 
1.5 inch color LCD display and 8 megabytes of internal memory. <laughs> but to me, it was beautiful. It was a miracle. And I took hundreds of mediocre digital pictures, <laughs> and I still have many of them. And I enjoyed it, but I never thought I had much of a skill for it. Uh, not long after I got mine, uh, my older brother also got a digital camera. His had optical zoom. <laughs> Now one day we're, we were at home looking at our pictures, uh, my brother and I, and I don't remember what the pictures were of, and I'm guessing they weren't really much to look at, but I remember my dad saying something to me. And I don't remember his exact words, but it was something like, you know, you really have an eye for this. Now when he said that, I thought he was confused. I thought he was looking at my brother's pictures and thinking they were mine. And so I tried to correct him and say, no, no, those are Matt's. These are the ones I took. Those are the good ones. Mine are not very good. But he insisted. Um, he thought he saw the seed of something there. And not long ago, I asked my dad about it. He told me that he recalls the character of your photos was different. It was richer and more revealing of the subject matter you were focused on. It wasn't so much that he, he said, man, those are beautiful pictures, but he said he realized there's something there. Um, he, he got an eye for this. And so he pointed that out. And that simple encouragement inspired in me a confidence that led to more. Not long after that, I got my own Kodak camera, which was nicer than my brother's. And a couple years after that, I bought a real DSL camera, one of the ones with the detachable lenses. About a year after I got that camera, I started exper experimenting with photo editing software. And I stumbled into the world of graphic design. Started messing around with fonts and photo overlay techniques, and, and I've been dabbling in graphics ever since. Now, I'm certainly not a professional photographer or a professional designer. But ever since that first digital camera, I've continued to pursue creative outlets of different types, including writing, podcast production, video editing. I don't know how many thousands of digital pictures I've taken. But through those years, I've discovered a deep love for the creative arts. And I attribute the spark that lit that fire to a simple comment. You know. You really have an eye for this. That simple word of encouragement impacted my life in ways that I can't begin to measure. Stories can help to make a principle personal. That story shows what encouragement can look like. Just a few words genuinely and thoughtfully spoken and the impact that that can have. So stories can help make the truth personal um, in a couple ways I want to point out. First, they can make it specific. So you can say, you know, you should really make prayer a priority. And someone can say, you know, you're right, I should. I should make prayer a priority. But how likely is it that they'll ever go beyond just saying, you know, I should. I should make prayer a priority. Are they going to go beyond that? Chances are probably not. But what if you take them to Daniel 6, which we mentioned earlier. Watch Daniel make prayer a priority by praying three times a day and continuing to do so faithfully and openly, even though it means his life is threatened. That specific story helps bring into focus what making prayer a priority might look like. That doesn't mean that we need to do everything just exactly the way Daniel did. That's not why these stories are here. But it takes that truth and it says, here's what that looked like in Daniel's life. Another example, Luke 6. See what Jesus does. As he's beginning to face some serious hatred and opposition from the Jewish leaders... And as he's preparing to choose 12 disciples, 
who are going to accompany him as his apostles. And what does he do? Verse 12 of Luke 6. It came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Now again, the point of that isn't, oh, I guess I need to pray all night. But no, it takes the idea, what does it mean to make prayer a priority? Well, this is what it looked like in Jesus' life. And this is what it looked like in Daniel's life. And when we see that, we see concrete, specific examples of prayer as a priority. It makes us ask the question, what will it look like for me to make prayer a priority? And when you ask that question, you're crossing an important threshold in application. Going from, you know, that's something I should do, to what does that need to look like? What are the steps that I need to take? What does God want me to do? How is this principle going to become concrete in my life? Would it mean multiple times of prayer each day? Would it mean extended times of prayer, even through the night? Maybe, but it sets our minds working. It starts us to think about that subject and what it needs to look like. Now, these stories don't offer a clear answer to that question, but they help us to begin to ask the question and help us begin to think about the subject in those specific concrete terms. So stories help us make the truth personal by making it specific. And they also help make it personal by showing the struggle. Now, people don't usually just say, okay, this is the truth that's presented to me. This is how my life needs to change. Bam, my life's changed. We're good. Taking that step, I'm ready for the next truth, which I'll also receive and immediately put into action. And never... Um, never a, a step backwards, never a struggle. Uh, just receive the truth, apply it, and we're done. We wish that's how it worked. We wish that's how it worked for ourselves. We wish that's what we saw over and over again in our own lives. But that's not the reality of how that normally goes. Normally it's more like, okay, so this is true, and uh, I think this is the right thing to do. But what about this? And, and if, I, if I do that, is it going to mess this other thing up? And what are the consequences going to be if I, if I start to do this? If I change in this area, what, what is this person going to think about it? And then we, we start taking steps that way, and then uh, we had good intentions in the beginning and, and struggle later on. And, and often people can hear the truth, accept the truth, and begin to apply the truth, and then they think, this isn't working out the way I envisioned. I thought this was going to be, uh, you know, just dancing through a meadow. Oh, this is great. I received the truth and applied it. And when they start to struggle, they get discouraged and think, what's wrong with me? Um, I, I didn't, this is, wasn't supposed to be part of this process. And often give up. One of the things that stories can show us and help people to understand is that growth, taking steps of obedience, is not just a, a continual, no struggle, stroll in the right direction. It involves struggle. And when people realize that, it encourages them not to grow discouraged because they aren't growing by leaps and bounds. Even our heroes in scripture, in scripture often really struggled to obey and grow. I think one really good example is the book of Esther. There's this decree made to put all the Jews to death. And Esther's uncle Mordecai, like many of his countrymen, responds to that decree by putting on sackcloth, sprinkling ashes on himself, and wailing and weeping about what's coming. Well, Esther finds out that, uh, that Mordecai is doing this, and how does she respond? Well, she's not sure why her uncle's acting so dramatic, and so she sends him a change of clothes, 
so that he'll stop acting that way. He'll put on normal clothes, stop acting like a weirdo. Well, Mordecai refuses the change of clothes. He continues in his mourning and his weeping. And so Esther sends a chamberlain to get more information. Uh, she's embarrassed by her uncle's actions, and so she wants to find out what's going on so she can put a stop to it. Well, the chamberlain returns with the whole story, uh, helping Esther to understand about this decree that's been made. But also, this chamberlain brings a charge from her uncle Mordecai. Mordecai tells the chamberlain to charge her that she should go in onto the king to make supplication unto him and to make request before him for her people. And Esther bravely steps up to play her part, excited to be the hero of the day. Well, that's, if this were a Disney movie, that's what would happen at this point. But that's not what happens. That might, um, the queen starts by making excuses. Sure, the Jews are all going to be murdered in cold blood. But there's a strict royal protocol about who can see the king and when. It's been a full month since the king has called for Esther. And who knows what might happen if she just showed up to see him. She responds to the call to action with an excuse. Well, Mordecai's answer contains what is probably the most well-known verse in the whole book of Esther. He says, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Well, Esther is still fearful, still reluctant, but she recognizes the truth in Mordecai's words. She sends a message to Mordecai with a charge of her own. She says, go gather together all the Jews that are present in, present in Shushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Of course, we know that God worked it all out. The king was happy to see Esther. She put off actually asking him to show mercy on the Jews it took a few feasts, which were probably unnecessary buttering up, but finally she explained to the king the situation and what she was asking for. But even in that, God worked out everything about it, even the timing. Even with Esther's delays, even with her reluctance to follow through on this, God worked it all out. But I appreciate this story because of the very human struggle that Esther is experiencing. She doesn't want to be a hero. She doesn't want to accept that she's being called on to be the voice for her people. And even when she realizes the part that she's being called to play, it takes a great deal to get her to the point where she's ready to take that big step. How very like us Esther is. So stories can be a powerful tool in showing that struggle and helping people realize it's going to be a struggle. You're going to battle with your flesh. But we have lots of examples from scripture and no doubt examples from our own lives of times where, yes, we struggled. Yes, we, we, we probably didn't do it quite the way we should have, but God still worked. He still met our needs. He still blessed. And as we obeyed, he met us and he guided us through. And those things can be such an encouragement and such a strength to people as they're applying the word of God to realize, yeah, it's going to be a challenge, but God can bring me through it. So stories can be a powerful tool in convincing people of the truth. They can help us show people what the truth looks like, call them to action, and make the truth personal. Now, I want to share a story with you tonight. I've alluded to this story a couple of times, but I want to tell you the whole thing. It's one of my favorites that I've come across in history. It was September of 1942. The United States was at war, and the submarine, the USS Sea Dragon, was in the Japanese-held waters of the South China Sea, 
when disaster struck. Seaman First Class Daryl Rector began to complain of stomach pain. Wheeler Lipes, who was the senior medical man on board the sub, gave Rector a quick but unfortunate diagnosis, acute appendicitis. Now, Rector, that meant that Rector's appendix was inflamed, and if left untreated, it would burst, which would lead to infection and death. The necessary treatment, an appendectomy, the removal of the appendix. It's a simple surgical pr procedure, but there was a problem. Wheeler Lipes was the senior medical man on board the sub, but he was not a surgeon. In fact, Wheeler Lipes wasn't even a doctor. His official title was pharmacist's mate. Qualified surgeons and proper surgical facilities were days away, and Rector didn't have days. Lipes had never per performed any surgery on anyone. He had seen an appendectomy, so he thought he might be able to do it. Well, the commanding officer urged Lipes to rise to the challenge, and Lipes' reply to him was lackluster. Everything is against us. Our chances are slim. But even though Lipes was hesitant about his ability to pull off this stunt, the alternative was far worse, so Lipes and Rector, the sailor with the inflamed appendix, prepared for surgery. Now, no space in the sub was really large enough to perform surgery, so they used the largest space available, the wardroom. They lay Rector on the wardroom table, which was small enough that his feet nearly dangled off the edge. The sub was not equipped for surgery, so Lipes had to improvise. Uh, spoons from the galley served as retractors to hold the incision open. A tea strainer filled with gauze served as a stand-in anesthesia mask. And the sub's machinist helped Lipes to fashion a makeshift handle for the handleless scalpel. Everyone was willing to chip in and help, but none of them knew what they were doing. Well, normally an appendectomy doesn't take more than about an hour. It took Wheeler Lipes two and a half hours. They used up every bit of ether they had on board in order to keep Rector under through the ordeal. But Lipes emerged victorious, holding Rector's inflamed appendix, and miraculously, Daryl Rector survived with no ill effects. Wheeler Lipes had performed his first surgical procedure at 120 feet below the waves. With limited supplies and zero surgical experience, it took guts. But Lipes saved the life of his fellow savior. Wow, I'm struggling with my words. Let's try that, let's try that sentence again. All right. He had limited supplies and zero surgical experience, but Lipes saved the life of his fellow sailor. Everything about the situation was difficult. It was inconvenient. It was far from ideal but Wheeler Lipes did what needed to be done. You know, life isn't all about finding your thing and doing it. Sure, we all have abilities and gifts, and we ought to use them for God's glory, but sometimes we're called to do things we aren't good at, things we haven't trained for, things where it seems like we're the last guy for the job. But sometimes we just need to pick up the scalpel, say a prayer, and do what needs to be done. Stories can be powerful tools for influence, to challenge and transform hearts. I hope that this is challenging to you tonight and helps you to think about this idea because I, I think we've got lots of biblical examples and we've got lots of opportunities to put this into action. And if we're telling stories well in the way that God wants us to, um, only he knows the influence that can have on the lives of others. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened. 
And we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.